So the readings from Act 28, verses 1 to 16. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out from the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official on the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after a prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of those on the island who were ill came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Thanks, Nick, for reading. Let me say once again what a pleasure it is to be back with you. And uh, let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, many of us have heard your, your word many times. We know how easy it is to let these words wash over us. Lord, please give us humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word and that long to put into practice what we hear. Help us to take these not just as human words, but as they really are the words of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, summer is nearly upon us. Some of us are looking at the possibility of overseas travel and wondering whether the quarantine is worth it and which countries are going to be on various lists. And I suppose this passage looks a little bit at first sight like something you might find in the travel pages of the newspapers. We went to Syracuse, we went to Regium, uh, we took some photos at Puteoli, uh, we took a cruise to the Forum of Appius. It's easy to get lost in the place names. And not desperately interesting, you might think, unless you like reading those travel narratives, or unless you're the kind of person like me who actually enjoyed looking at the maps in the back of the geography textbook. I guess there's the bit about the snake that might come across as slightly more interesting, 
But again, you might think Paul surviving a snake bite is not desperately important from a global point of view. But the truth is this passage is hugely significant in the book of Acts, in, in fact, in the entire sweep of world history. And it is because of those six little words in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. You see, we have been waiting for this moment for 28 chapters. Uh, As Ed mentioned, we're almost at the end of the book of Acts, this history of the first generation of Christians. And back in chapter 1, we heard Jesus give a kind of mission statement for the book. He spoke to his first disciples and he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's the mission plan. And to begin with, what do you have? You have a few dozen people and a dozen not desperately impressive fishermen, and it looks like they're not going to get very far at all with witnessing to Jesus. And yet we see over the course of the book the march of the gospel through Judea and Samaria and the whole Eastern Roman Empire at a speed that, frankly, no secular historian has a good explanation for. And so we've passed Jerusalem, we've passed Judea and Samaria. The question is, will Jesus be able to keep that promise? Will the gospel, in fact, get to the ends of the earth? And in those days, the ends of the earth means Rome. Now, I know literally, in the New Testament world, the furthest place you could possibly think of was, in fact, Britain. We were the ends of the earth. But Rome is the center of the empire. And once the Gospels gained a foothold in Rome, people are going to take it to the ends of the earth faster than you can say Augustus Caesar. Rome equals mission accomplished. But how on earth is the gospel going to get there? Over the last seven chapters, Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, has been nearly killed by a mob. He has had to endure four official trials, two years of imprisonment, a storm, a shipwreck. And in this passage, you have the danger of hypothermia from being washed up on a beach. You have a snake bite that should have killed him. You have the continued dangers of travel at the wrong time of the year. And you have a very dubious question about how the natives of Malta are going to treat him. It was very common in those days that if someone was washed up on board a ship, they would, off, off a ship, they would simply be killed and their things would be stolen. So the promise is on very ropey ground. But the promises keep coming. 23 verse 11, a few chapters back, the Lord stood near Paul in prison and said, Take courage. You must testify about me in Rome. Just last week, during the storm, an angel stood beside Paul and said, you must stand trial before Caesar. And sure enough, 28 verse 14, and so we came to Rome. Mission accomplished. Jesus has proved once again, you can trust him. You can trust him to get his word out where it needs to be. It turns out the gospel really is unstoppable. Now, the obvious one is God's miraculous hand in 
giving Paul to recover from a snake bite, which the natives obviously expected would kill him. Uh, But you also have God's hand at work in the unusual kindness of the islanders in verse 2. Islanders who were used to killing those who had been washed overboard. They gave him a warm welcome. Literally, they lit a fire for him. It was raining and cold. You half wonder if he didn't wash up in Britain, but no, apparently it was Malta. Then you have the generous hospitality of Malta's chief official in verse 7. Then you have God giving Paul the ability to heal the official's father. So that the islanders, they honour him. And they give his party the supplies they need. And then when Paul gets to Italy, verses 14 and 15, what does he find? Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, believers. And he is so encouraged to see them. He thanks God. The irony is an irony here. Because when Paul gets on the ship to make way towards Italy, the figurehead of the ship is Castor and Pollux. And apparently, if you look these guys up, They were the protectors of the seas. They were the guys that you would put on your ship in order to say, Castor and Pollux, please protect us from storms, protect us from shipwrecks, protect us from marauding Moltons, protect us from anything else that might go wrong. And the irony is, of course, it's not Castor and Pollux at all. It's the true God. It's the creator of land and sea has kept his messenger safe. Not because Paul has special powers, not because Paul's done something to deserve it, but because Paul equals gospel to Rome. And God promised gospel to Rome, simple as that. Now, we don't have quite such detailed promises from God as the ones that Paul got. I'm sure we'd love a promise that in the next year, 10 people are going to become Christians in Little Shelford. Uh, We don't have a promise that there's going to be a massive revival in the UK in our generation. We No doubt we wish we did. But we do have the promises that God has actually made. Listen to this one from, from Matthew 24. This is Jesus speaking. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations before the end comes. Listen to this promise from, from Matthew chapter 16. Familiar words perhaps. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Jesus is showing here in Acts 28, and he's still showing today that he can be trusted to get his gospel where he wants it to be. The progress of the word is not some random process constantly in danger from the shifting tides of history. It's the work of the Lord, and he's already made promises about it. And he said that he will build his church in our day. And lo and behold, we are a church. And that is no small thing. The local picture may not look rosy sometimes. Countries may become less Christian. We're living in one. Individual churches may even decline. But in every generation, in every nation, despite all the confident promises from all the smart people that Christianity is about to cop it, the gospel finds soil. And it finds those who belong to Christ. And the church is built. And that, I suppose, is what gives us the confidence to keep going. And it is a slog sometimes. I trust it's felt as much of a slog over the last 15 months as it has for, for me. It's felt hard holding our own, never mind thinking about how we can get the gospel out. 
But we are part of Jesus' promise to build his church. And that is what we cling to. And that is what keeps us from despair. I go to a church in Kensington at the moment, and we had a baptism last week. We had a baptism. A lady was baptized. A soul was saved. Like the angels blew the trumpets. She had given up on church 15 years previously. And her grandma, bless her, had sat in the back pew at our church from the ages of 75 to 90, praying for this granddaughter of hers to come back to the Lord Jesus. And through everything, through COVID, frankly, through other tragedies, sadly, but this lady came back to the Lord Jesus and God builds his church and that is no small thing. This passage, I mentioned COVID, I mentioned that it was hardships that had a part to play in, in bringing this lady back to the faith. Because this passage doesn't just teach us that God can be trusted to get his gospel out, it also has a lot to say about how he does that. And I confess I missed this at first, even though it stares you in the face. You see, how does God get his gospel out? How does he protect Paul so he can get the gospel to Rome? Right, work with me here. Is it by Paul coming up with a 10-step plan about where he's going to go and who he's going to go with and then carrying out that plan to perfection and signing off on it? Is it by Paul riding into Rome on a gleaming white stallion with the crowds falling down in wonder before him? Is that how God gets the gospel to Rome? Is it slick? Is it strategic? Is it any kind of organized? No, it is in fact a mess. Paul enters Rome as a prisoner with a pending trial before Caesar. There are soldiers with him, but they aren't a guard of honor. They're a prisoner's escort. The waves do not part for Paul. In fact, they wreck his ship. Not to mention plots, riots, and snake bites. Jesus appeared to Paul at his conversion, and he said, you are my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. Now, I don't suppose Paul got much of that at the time. He was too busy being blinded. But when he reflected on those words, I bet he said, I get to proclaim the gospel to kings. I don't know what he envisaged. Probably marching into the king's throne room and saying, King, I have news for you. Paul is about to testify before Nero Caesar. But he's not going to be standing in a pulpit. He's not going to be standing in the place of honor. He is going to be standing in the dock. In fact, it is, as you know from the chapters we've just gone through... It is because of the unjust accusations of the Jews in Jerusalem. It is because of plots and riots and things constantly going wrong. That is why Paul has been shifted from pillar to post and he's been on trial four times and he's been able to speak to governors 
and the Jewish council and to the Jewish king and to the passengers on the ship and to the natives of Malta and now to the emperor. It's not just that God gets his gospel to Rome despite the setbacks and the sufferings. Frankly, the setbacks and the sufferings almost seem to be God's preferred method for spreading his gospel. And really, it has to be that way. Paul says in one of his letters that he was once pleading with the Lord about a thorn in his flesh, a a kind of suffering that he was going through, and he was saying, Lord, please take this away. This is hopeless. And God said to Paul, no, my power is made perfect through weakness. You see, only when the gospel comes through weakness and suffering does it become clear that it's not spreading through human strength, but through the power of God. If God smooths the path of the gospel too much, if the gospel meets victory everywhere it goes, then you know what goes wrong. We start to take the credit. We think the key is for the gospel to have soldiers behind it, or political savvy, or slick strategy, or, or, or mental genius. And that utterly undermines the gospel, if if we start to think like that. Because the whole point of the gospel is that we can take no credit for our salvation. The whole point of the gospel is that we do not achieve salvation through our own strength. The whole point of the gospel is that God rescues us in our weakness and our helplessness. You cannot preach a message of human weakness from a position of human strength. You cannot preach a message of human weakness from a position of human strength. And you certainly cannot preach a message about a suffering and crucified Christ from a position of strength and comfort. Somehow the the message has to look foolish and weak and unimpressive, just as Jesus did. It has to slip under the radar of the proud just as Jesus did. How the gospel comes has to match what the gospel says. Not by human might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Otherwise, we start to take the credit. It has to be plain that it's all about him. And what that means is the setbacks and sufferings are not an indication that we're on the wrong track. We can trust God to get his gospel out That's the first point. Through setbacks and sufferings, yes. And so those setbacks and sufferings are not an indication that we are on the wrong track. Because that is what the islanders thought. You slightly wonder, I mean Luke hasn't got an infinitely long scroll, why does he spend quite a few verses describing the reaction of the islanders? In verse 4, Paul gets bitten by a snake. They see the snake hanging off his hand, and they say, verse 4, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. They think, pardon the pun, that Paul's past sins have come back to bite him. And this is natural, isn't it? 
to think that we must have done something to deserve our sufferings. When the mission hits failure, when the gospel work hits frustration, we think, I must have done something wrong. Something bad happens to us. We think, maybe I did something to deserve this. Something good happens to us. We think, ah, I must have done something right at some point. We say those sorts of things half in jest, but we have an instinct that things ought to work that way. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the case that every human religion almost has some kind of concept of karma. It's natural to think that your sins will catch up with you. That's the mistake that Job's friends made. Interestingly, you can argue the other way as well. I've been learning in college a little bit about Islam, and one of the strongest arguments that Sorry, one of the most common arguments that people make when they're arguing for Islam is they say, look at all the conquests that Islam made in its first century. As soon as Islam burst onto the scene, it conquered dozens of countries. And they basically say, if it achieved that many victories, then it must have God's blessing behind it. That's how you, you see what God, the real religion, the one that God is blessing, it's the one that wins victories. And it worked the other way as well in Paul's day. If basically, if you had a failed harvest, you assumed that some god was angry with you. If you, had, if you were sick, you assumed that some other god was angry with you. If you had if it was a storm, if you were shipwrecked, you definitely assumed some god was angry with you. People who suffered, uh, had their house burning down, were, that they, it was assumed that they'd done something dreadful. So a new religion comes to town. Who's this guy? Paul. He's talking about this Christ guy. Okay, what kind of life has Paul led? Has he, has he been blessed recently? Is his ministry flourishing? Uh, actually, he's a condemned prisoner. He was bitten by a snake. He's been shipwrecked. He's been rioted. He's been on trial four times. Uh, well, I guess the gods aren't very pleased with him then. And so at this crucial point for Paul and the gospel, God chooses in his kindness to vindicate Paul. These, these Maltese islanders, there's really only one language they speak. And so Paul gives these, sorry, God gives these guys a dramatic demonstration that Paul is not under God's curse because the snake bite has no effect. And I love the way that the islanders instantly turn around and they say, oh, no, it, OK, never mind. He's not a murderer. In fact, he's a god. Like, you ever heard of, like, middle ground guys? That's the conclusion they come to. I imagine Paul uh, set them right on that one pretty quickly. But God is very keen to show them, just because my man has suffered storm and shipwreck and snake bite, doesn't mean he's on the wrong track. Now, we may not be inclined to think the same way the islanders did, If we were holding a guest service here and the steeple was struck by lightning, we probably wouldn't conclude that God was angry with us. Um, I have some friends on the continent who spent two years planning to plant a church and then COVID struck basically in their first week. It was a, a terrible blow, but I don't think they concluded that God was trying to get at them. But we will face other kinds of setbacks and sufferings. And you probably know as well as I do the temptation to think that 
I must be on the wrong track when nobody comes to that guest event, when that close family member calls me, calls me a bigot, when my kid gets absolutely piled on at school for holding to a biblical view of marriage and gender, when, when my friends just become expert at steering the conversation away from, from any topic where we might mention Jesus. That little nagging voice, maybe I'm on the wrong track here. Maybe if my gospel was a bit more palatable, it might meet a better response. It's not, in my experience, it's not the the outright hate that gets you down, it's the indifference and those those long nothings and it keeps at you. We must be doing something wrong. And you think, well, maybe I will just change the message. At least some of the sharper bits of it. And Acts tells us that defeat is no refutation. Setbacks and sufferings are no sign that we are under God's curse. God uses the setbacks and sufferings. He almost seems to prefer to. Maybe you have your own experience of this. Maybe you can say years after the fact that times of intense trouble in your life have been times of fruitful spiritual growth, not because you enjoyed the experience, but because they, those times drove you closer into the arms of, of God. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's all right. God gives each of us our own story, and frankly, sometimes the setbacks and the sufferings seem to have nothing to do with the progress of the gospel. The point is that they are no... They are no warning sign. God will build his church. In fact, based on his track record, he will probably use the setbacks and the sufferings to do it. So keep at it. We have the track record of Acts. God got the gospel to Rome, and he will do what he pleases with it in our time. Let's trust him even at a time like this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you will continue to build your church, that you have proved yourself faithful to that promise, just as you did in Paul's day. And Lord, when the harvest is small and the times are thin, help us to cling to that knowledge. Help us to persevere in their gospel work, even in the face of suffering knowing that it's often through suffering and weakness that you choose to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.